well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, as has been said, my name is Nick. Um, I also greatly appreciate the fact that you've braved a day that can only be described as welcoming back proper British weather, um, rather than the six weeks of glorious sunshine that we had. Seems a long, long way away. Um, but it's really lovely to be with you. Um, so uh, I normally go along, my friend Ben and I normally go along to New Community Church over in Sidcup, which is part of the New Ground family. And so it's really lovely to kind of be kind of in a home away from home. Like, uh, it really feels like I am kind of amongst family. So thank you. Thank you for letting me be here. Um, I am here kind of on behalf of a charity called International Justice Mission, or IGM uh, for short. I'm going to be saying that because otherwise I'm, it's just long words. Um, but IGM are a charity that exists to try and end slavery. That's basically their mission statement. Um, and so we are joining with about 7,000 churches all around the globe this Sunday uh, to, to celebrate Freedom Sunday, which is the church joined together to say that we stand before a God who is a God of justice and that actually we can play our part as his followers, as his people, in seeing an end to slavery and injustice all around the world. That just as Christ has set us free from, from slavery to sin, actually wants to bring physical freedom as well um, to those who are caught up in, in literal slavery. Now, I wonder what comes into your head when I use that word, um, slavery. Um, there could be a few different things going on, perhaps, for you. Uh, for some of you, you might kind of have a concept of slavery that's kind of rooted in uh, the transatlantic slave trade, uh, a period of about 400 years in kind of the 14th century through to about the 19th century, um, where, where people were trafficked, shipped across the Atlantic from Africa um, into work on plantations or to work as manservants. Um, and you might have an idea kind of of the horrors that that was, things like 12 years of slave, bring that really into kind of a very vivid picture for us. But you might be thinking, but I thought that kind of William Wilberforce and the abolitionists, those guys uh, saw an end to that in kind of the 19th century, that slavery kind of as a thing doesn't really exist in the same way. Um, you might kind of just more generally think slavery, you know what, uh, someone being bought and sold um, as a commodity, um, being treated as somewhat less than human. Um, but again, kind of this concept, well, that's kind of something that's talked about in the past. Or if you've kind of grown up uh, or been around church for a while, you might kind of remember passages like Romans, where it talks about that, you are, that we were once slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to God. We are, we are set free from the slavery of the shame and the mess that we were caught up in, and now we walk as free people, free under righteousness. So, so, so we could call ourselves almost slaves to righteousness, slaves to God in that context. Now, none of those things are necessarily wrong to have as concepts in your head when you hear the word of slavery, but the blunt reality is that there are more people in slavery today than there have ever been at any other point in human history. At conservative estimate, is reckoned that there are probably about 40 million people caught up in slavery in the world today. To put that in a little bit of context, that is, um, that is more than the total number of people shipped and trafficked in the 400-year period of the transatlantic slave trade, uh, caught up in slavery today. The population of London, the area that we live, Greater London, is about 8 million. Imagine the, the hustle and bustle of London five times over and every single one of those people being bought and sold, trafficked into situations where they're, they're kept in oppressive means. It's thought that every 30 seconds, a child somewhere in the world is trafficked into slavery. 
this meeting will be around about 90 minutes long. That's 180 children freshly trafficked into brothels, brick kilns, fishing boats, and other contexts around the world. And the reality is, slavery is an abhorrent, vile, and foul evil in the world. Let's, let's not pull any punches when we say that. It has no place inside of society. And the good news for us as Christians, uh, for if you're looking in, is that God is a God of justice. And he says in his goodness and his mercy that there is no place for it either in the kingdom of God. And so that means that as we start to explore what Freedom Sunday can mean, what it means to maybe look at a charity like IGM, that we come before a God who cares and is involved and actively wants to seek out those who are caught up in systems of oppression, abuse, and slavery around the world today. That there is good news in situations, in a context that can seem so bleak and so vast, that actually change is possible. And that, for me, is where IGM as a charity come in. IGM are the world's largest anti-slavery organization. Um, they work in about 13 different countries around the world, directly combating um, slavery and other types of injustice through a model that is built upon four things. The first is rescuing slaves and people caught, caught up in injustice, building cases, building, uh, gaining evidence to, say, to learn where these people are so that they can go in with the police in order to rescue and set these people literally free from what is going on for them. Part one, rescue. Second, they restore these victims. And they don't just restore them as victims, they restore them as survivors. They give them, they give them support. They, they work with social workers and therapists in order, in order to say, you've been through some horrific circumstances. Let us help you understand that. Let us help you understand who you really are, that you are no longer caught up in slavery, but now you are free. There's, a, there's a, a story that is told out in the Philippines of two girls who are rescued from something called cyber sex trafficking or the online sexual exploitation of children, which is where children as young as, sometimes even as uh, it's horrific as six months old are abused in front of webcams uh, for the perversion of Westerners. And they rescued these two girls and were... And we're, kind of, and we're taking them away from the village where they were being abused. And, uh, and the two girls were, were, kind of, were kind of confused as to why they were being taken away. And they were being told, you're free, you're free, you're free. You're not going to be hurt anymore, you're free. But they just couldn't seem to understand that. And then the social workers started kind of giving them bananas and toys and things that they hadn't enjoyed for so long. And it slowly dawned on them that actually maybe something inside their situation had changed. And... There was a moment where they were starting to be happy again. But then one of these little girls' faces dropped just a touch. And they're going, what's, what's wrong? And she replied and said, what took you so long? So IGM hear that, and they say that that cannot be the way. And so they rescue these people. They find them out and they rescue them. They restore them as survivors, doing things like giving them a new vocation, vocational skills, so that they don't run the risk of being re-trafficked. Um, in the Philippines, they run things like card factories in order that these, the women who are rescued from brothels can be, can be having a job that gives them a, a good wage in order that they don't run the risk of being deceived into going back into that which they were rescued out of. Next, what they do is they, uh, they bring criminals to justice. In the 20-year kind of history of IGM, they've, uh, they've seen over 3,500 criminals brought to justice. 
Um, that is three and a half thousand people who will never again be able to traffic and oppress people made in the image of God like you and I. Ultimately, criminals need to know that there is a cost to what they're doing. And so by bringing them to justice, IGM is saying, you will not get away with this. And then finally, they work within the system that is already there, the law courts and the police, in order to, in order to strengthen them and build them to the extent where, may, where the locals themselves will be able to do the job. It's not about the, the white man coming in and doing all the work. It's about saying these laws already exist. Let's help you. Let's train you in order that you can do the job here. Elsa um, is a, was a 12-year-old girl when her mother and father passed away. Um, she, as the oldest sibling in, uh, inside of her culture in the Philippines, it, it fell to her to be the person by whom by, by whom she'd provide for her, for her siblings. What she wanted to do was, was earn enough money in order that she might be able to put her brothers through college, through an education. Um, and so she started working, doing odd jobs here and then, and did that for about 10 years or so. At the age of 22, um, she was offered a job um, in a bar in a, in a town nearby her. Um, we're going to watch a short video just to see a little bit more of her story. Right around the world, uh, there are people, uh, just like Elsa, who are currently caught up in systems that, that uh, keep them enslaved. But change is possible. Just like you heard the story there of Elsa being, uh, being caught up by deceit and lies, of being offered just what she thought would be just a job waiting at tables, was then kept and forced to perform acts which she didn't want to do. Um, there is chance for change there people caught up in these situations can feel like there is no hope for them. But IGM exists as a charity to say that this could be the last generation of slaves that there's ever been. I deliberately chose that story of, of Elsa. There are so many other stories on IGM's website, igmuk.org, um, because I wanted to, to show you that the model that IGM worked through, through both rescuing and restoring, but also working within the current systems, works. Because in the Philippines, over, a, over, a, over a, quite a brief period of working there, they saw that there are as many as 98% of the people caught up in the commercial sex trade were minors being trafficked into it. And that... Oh, that to us obviously is something that is wrong. We look at that and we say, that cannot be right. And so IGM went there. And what they did is they went for the one by one, slowly but surely, just looking and finding those, those, those young boys and girls who were caught up inside of that and rescuing them from it, trying to work to create system change, training the police um, in order that they would be an anti-trafficking unit as well. And they saw some remarkable results. Could we have the next slide up, please? Um, so in Cebu, the second largest city in just a four-year period, saw a 79% reduction of the number of minors being trafficked into in, or available for commercial sex. In Manila, the capital city, a 75% reduction over a seven-year period. And in Pampanga, um, which is a, another significant city, an 86% reduction in the number of minors available for, for sex in the commercial sex trade. Those are remarkable turnarounds in such a short space of time. And it was through partnering with the law enforcement systems that were there that IGM were able to see such a big change. That through teaching criminals that they would not get away with this, and through restoring and rescuing the survivors of it, that actually change is possible. And so for me, that ultimately is why I guess I'm here. I, I don't personally work for IGM. I'm just a kind of supporter myself. Um, 
but, but because I genuinely believe that this could be the last generation of slaves. And I believe that because I do believe in the model. I believe those stats show it. But I certainly believe it because of the realities of the God that we serve. That God is a God of justice. That throughout all of the Bible, what we see is a God who deeply and intimately cares about the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed, and wants to lift them out of that. We see this um, even as early as Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, where God creates men and women in his own image, which means that every single person, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their culture, no matter their social economic background, is worthy of respect, worthy of dignity, and worthy of value. And so that means for us, as we treat each other, we have to treat each other reflecting that. He goes and he does it in something like Exodus, doesn't he? God's people are literally caught in slavery there. They are being oppressed by the Egyptians. And what does God do? He hears their cries, it says. And he charges Moses with bringing them out and he himself does it so that God's people are set free and able to live in the promised land. He sets up Israel and gives them laws that look out for the poor in their midst. Widows, people who would often have no rights. He actively looks out for them. Foreigners in their midst. He says, look after them. Welcome them. Bring them into the fold. Time and time and time again throughout Scripture, we see this fact that God ultimately deeply and intimately cares about every single person inside of this world. And I guess we most see that, don't we, through ultimately the fact that the Father sends his Son to die and hang on a cross for, people, for every single person who's caught up in slavery to sin in order that they might be free as well. Ultimately, we serve and we love a God of justice. And so we know that in this quest to see an end to the end of Monday slavery, that it is possible because, or what does it say? What is impossible with man is possible with God. And so knowing that that is the type of God that we come before means that actually we can see change. As I was, um, as I was praying uh, ahead of coming here, I felt like God gave particularly one, uh, one little story inside of Jesus' stories um, for us to kind of land in in terms of us knowing the type of God that he is. So if you've got a Bible with you, um, I'd love to encourage you to find Matthew 18. Um, it is going to come up on the screen in case you don't have one with you. Um, it's quite a famous story that we're going to be reading. Um, Jesus uh, has kind of had uh, a bunch of people around him asking uh, Ask him, well, who's the greatest here? Like, what, what does it mean to be kind of a big deal in the kingdom of God? Um, and Jesus just reframes it and says, you know what? It's not about being important. It's actually about humbling yourself. He places value in that moment on children because he says, humble yourself like a little child and you will inherit the kingdom of God. And so what he says is he starts to tell this story, which is in, from verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, these children. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, quick aside, I have no idea really what that's talking about. Um, like if something about guardian angels. I don't think that's the thrust of the passage at the moment. Um, but anyway, what do you think? And so Jesus tells a parable, a story with a meaning. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. 
So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. And what God spoke to me through that, through that story, which is quite famous to, to a lot of us who've been in church before, is the fact that he actively goes and seeks out that vulnerable one. That we have this story of a shepherd who has a fairly large flock. Like in terms of the context, it's, it's a decent, decent sized flock. And you'd be thinking, you know what, 99, that's still quite, quite gone well. Like you're risking yourself by going and hunting out the sheep. Like it's probable that the, sheep, the rest of the flock are in like some sort of pen up on the mountain. So they're relatively safe. Um, but still, count your losses, 99 to 1, like law of averages. Like you're going to be leaving, sticking with the 99. But what does the shepherd do? He puts himself a little bit at risk in going and hunting it out. And he goes and finds that sheep that, that is just bumbling around on its own. And he cares so much about it that he, he picks it, brings it back, and rejoices over the fact that one has come back, that he has found this one. He so actively goes to seek it out that he's prepared to, to take a risk for that. And that, for me, reveals something of the type of God that, that is revealed inside of the pages of the Bible, that he cares so much about the vulnerable. He cares so much about the lost and the hurting inside this world that he would be prepared to go out after the one by one in order to see change, in order to see restoration, in order to see them rescued and being brought back into the fold. Now, there's a picture here, obviously, of, of the spiritual condition that we all find ourselves in. The reality that, all, like that one lost sheep, we were, we were bumbling around in our own mess and our own shame. But God himself sends the Son in order to rescue that sheep, rescue us. But there's also a very physical image inside of that as well, of the active going, the active doing, the active rescuing of the shepherd to the lost one. And using the, the reason why I chose this version of the story is because of how Jesus uses it about the children. Innocent, vulnerable people. And it says that the will of my Father who is in heaven is that not one of these little ones should perish. That, for me, speaks such hope into this context of the 40 million people caught up in slavery today. Because it shows to me that the will of God is that anyone who is vulnerable and innocent is not to be caught up in something that would oppress them and hurt them. And so we know that if God is prepared to do that for us, then he'll do it for everyone else as well. That encourages us both in our mission locally, but also globally as to what God will be up to and do. And so my encouragement today is that actually maybe for us as a challenge, as a church, to recognize really who it is we serve as God. That this God of justice truly and deeply and intimately cares about the wrongdoings and the evil that is going on in the world and wants us as his people to reflect his heart towards them. Because the reality is we are free. We are free people. We have been set free from all the mess that was caught up with. That is the gospel, is it not? That once we're dead in our sins, now we have life inside of Jesus Christ. But Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And, and so there's this challenge kind of within the Bible that, that when you receive much, you give much. That when, once you see the love of God on display towards you, then in turn you have to go and do something about it. That because we have been set free, so we should fight and campaign for the freedom of others as well. Whether that's spiritually or actually in this context, physically as well.
that for us as Christians, it matters. It hurts that there are 40 million people caught up in slavery today. And we have a responsibility to play our part in seeing an end to that. Um, for me personally, I never thought I'd be here doing this, to be honest. Um, I grew up um, on the island of Guernsey, uh, near France, um, part of Britain, but near France. And uh, the reality was that I never really kind of had much of a concept of kind of justice or injustice in my head. Um, a bit like some parts of kind of London, um, you can kind of have this kind of this idea that kind of poverty and those sorts of things are kind of somewhere else um, because it's a very wealthy place. It's something like the 16th wealthiest kind of country per capita, or country island uh, per capita um, in the world. And so I never kind of really saw homelessness. I never really saw kind of poverty really visibly in my face. And so I went to university um, up in Durham, again, kind of as a student there. It's basically like wealthy bubble um, in a context of actually some of the least, um, least wealthy areas in the country. But I started to see things which challenged me a little bit. And there was distinctly one moment that I think I can look back on and see was God starting to teach me something. And that was when I was just walking home uh, from, from Tesco, uh, doing the classic student, I was hungry, so I went to Tesco. Um, and, and I remember walking by a shop, um, a shop front and seeing one of my friends, um, one of my friends uh, from the Christian Union, uh, just sitting down uh, next, to a, next to a homeless man there. And I, I'm pretty sure that I was kind of dressed in my kind of my Durham finery of chinos and, uh, and, and check shirts and all the other things that you'd expect posh people to wear. Um, and, and, and yet my friend's there just, just casually uh, just chatting away um, with this guy who I later found out was called Lee. Um, and, and my friend Dan just kind of just waved me down and just, just said, oh, like, come meet Lee sort of thing, and just invited me to sit down and, and start talking um, to him. And, and I remember kind of that conversation was a bit awkward for me because I was like, I don't know really what I'm doing here. Like, I am very acutely aware that, like, I am, like, very much showing off my wealth right now, um, and, and I, don't, I don't really know what to say here. Um, and my friend Dan was just sitting there and just chatting away, loving this, loving this man. Um, and and it slowly, I slowly realized more and more about who this, this guy Lee was, that he'd been in and out of the care system as he was growing up, that he was, had kind of been in and out of homelessness since as well. Um, and that he just had a really, really rough lot in life. And it wasn't through any choice of his that he was homeless. It wasn't through necessarily anything that he'd particularly done. But it was just the situation he found himself in. And I saw, I guess looking back, I saw that reality of Genesis 1 again. That every single person matters. Has value, not on the basis of what they can kind of physically offer you. But just on the basis that they're made in the image of God and so they matter. And it challenged me a heck of a lot because in my arrogance, in my kind of pride, I'd been walking by him a number of times um, and just kind of ignoring. I'd been doing that, that uh, the story of the Good Samaritan moment of kind of on my way to a prayer meeting but walking the other side of the road to avoid him. And sitting down and having my friend Dan just introduce me just shifted something inside of me that just said, you know what? The reality is there are people who are much less privileged than we are inside of even our society here, let alone globally. And as Christians, 
What are we told? Love your neighbor as yourself. Go, love, support. And, and so kind of that just shifted a little bit of something inside of me, but I was still kind of in that kind of place of kind of, well, there's kind of the social action warriors over here that are who kind of do all the loving the poor stuff. Um, and, and it was only when kind of I got to a new community in Sidcup, I was invited to join the staff team after uni, um, that, that our lead elder just turned around and kind of just said in a random meeting, like, oh, I'm kind of thinking that God's saying to us, maybe we should get involved with some charities. Um, uh, Compassion, Home for Good, and IGM. Um, and I had a friend from uni who was, the, who was kind of the church relations officer for iGEM. Um, and so I was like, well, we may as well go for coffee. Like, if I know him, like, we may as well chat sort of thing. And somehow, through God's timing of it all, um, I ended up kind of leading a community called a Mission Freedom Community um, with just me and two other people, three other people, sorry, um, fortnightly, where we, we vaguely tried to say, well, we kind of think that justice matters, but what? Um, and we just started to unpack the Bible a little bit, using some resources. And slowly but surely, it did slightly break something inside of me to the extent where... Um, where I guess now I can say, you know what, I, I'm doing this um, because I see inside of here that God cares about it. And my response is that what little part I can play, I'll try and do, that just as God would go for the one by one, maybe I can do my part, treating people with more value than I maybe would have in the past in the world around me, thinking about the things that I buy and, and whether or not I can shop a little bit more ethically in order to cut a supply chain that would say, you know what, because I want stuff cheap, somewhere down the line someone needs to be exploited to get me that. Can I buy fair trade goods or Rainforest Alliance goods? Can I buy ethical clothing as opposed to just nipping down to the cheap, cheap places that we all know? Um, and ultimately, I'm now a social worker um, because I ultimately, when I, I kind of had this moment with the elders where it felt like it was time for me not to work for the church for a while. And I just felt ultimately I need to do something with people. Like I've seen something in the heart of God, which for me meant that that was my response. And so I applied and managed to get on a course and have loved doing it since. Um, I'm not saying that story to try to put me as like the, the big holy justice warrior in the corner at all, because I'm really not. I am still learning. I'm still making mistakes. I'm still a muppet a heck of a lot of the time. And I still walk by people to my, in many ways to my shame. But what I do see is that God actively goes himself to seek people out. And that for me, as a follower of his, I want to play my part in doing the same. And so I guess I'll, I'll end with this. What could your response be? In light of this numbers of 40 million people, what could your response be in playing your part in seeing an end to slavery um, today? Well, the first is a quite simple one, but kind of one of the most costly, and that's to pray. You can, you can join in what IGM wants to create as the, as the largest movement a prayer movement against slavery that the UK has ever seen. There's um, a website just up there, igmuk.org forward slash pray for justice, which you can uh, which you can sign up to online, or in this, which uh, which you should have on your seats. Um, there's a form which you can fill out. It's got a free post back, um, and you can fill that out. 
Um, for me, these are real regular highlights of my week. Every Saturday, they'll send out a prayer update where actually you can see the difference um, that, that your prayers are making because it will tell you about rescues that are going on. It will tell you about people who are being restored, but also tell you this is, we need prayer here. One of the reasons I love IGM is that they're unashamedly all about prayer. Every day around the world, all their offices start their day at 9 a.m. with praying because ultimately they recognize that we can do nothing without God helping us out. Ultimately, as Christians, our prayers are powerful and effective. And so let's join in that. I'd so encourage you, if nothing else, please sign up to pray. Um, Secondly, um, you can give. I'm not going to labor this point, but ultimately... It does cost money um, to, to, to run an organization. IGM are a charity, so they run off charitable givings. Um, one of the things that we can do is recognize that we do have a, a level of wealth, which we can, we can use to help rescue people further afield. Um, equally, there's a website there, um, igmuk.org forward slash freedom partner, um, where you can sign up to give a one-off or a regular month thing. Similarly, um, inside of this booklet on the back, there's kind of a giving, um, a giving form. Quick point on that, if you do fill this out, please do both sides of it, otherwise it won't count, um, or it's very hard to like, actually do it. They need a signature, that sort of stuff. So please fill out your contact details as well as your bank details if you have to do that. Um, And then finally, step number three, maybe you could act. Because ultimately, I think a lot of the world doesn't know that slavery still exists. I've seen that in my own life, talking with people in my office um, about what's going on, about some of the things that are going on. They're surprised to hear that there are that many people caught up in slavery today. We, as a church, um, as God's people, have an opportunity to raise awareness of the realities of this. Use your voice, research and read a little bit more about what is, go- what is going on and how we can play our part in ending it. Maybe it can be to start to think about, can I shift some of my habits? Could I maybe do a bit more in terms of seeking justice in my own local community and how I live my life? Um, if any of those things kind of appeal to you, um, I'd love to chat with you a little bit more at the end. Um, but ultimately I think for all of us there is an opportunity for us to act as well so pray, give or act I'd love you to think and pray whether one of those things or all of them could be something that you could do but ultimately I'm going to leave you with this Jesus ultimately as Christians is always our model isn't he Uh, we look at him and we try and work out how we reflect him and we live like he did Um, in that In Luke, um, you get the story of how he starts his ministry. And all that we kind of have seen in Luke up to this point is the fact that Jesus has kind of been born uh, and that he's kind of lived his early years. um, And then he's been taken out into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. The first time really where we get him on scene um, talking about what he's about is to people is is in a synagogue. And what he does is he, he gets up, he picks up the scroll of the Old Testament, the scroll of Isaiah, and opens it up and says this, Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus sets up his manifesto, I guess, in that moment. And what he says is, I'm about seeing people set free. 
I am about proclaiming freedom. I am about bringing liberty. And I am about seeing an end to oppression, both spiritually and also we see physically in how he lives his life. For me, I see a Jesus who deeply and intimately cares about every single individual that he encounters, who goes to the vulnerable inside of his society and calls his followers to do the same. For me, I'm glad that Jesus comes and says that that spirit is upon him and that that spirit is now put inside of each and every one of us. Shall I pray to end? Jesus, I thank you uh, that you ultimately are a God.